Children are being dismissed for Children's Church. Let's take our Bibles uh, this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. Taking a look uh, this morning, Lord willing, verses 15 through 21. The title of our message this morning is The Laughter of God. The Laughter of God. Does God laugh? Yes, He does. He usually gets the last laugh, too. But we're continuing to go through verse by verse through the book of Genesis, having already completed verses 1 through 11, which is basically tracing a promise of a coming Messiah. And then when we get to chapter 12, the tension is, well, which nation is this Messiah going to come from? And God says, I'll solve that problem by creating a nation. So beginning in chapters 12 through 50 is the creation and the preservation of the nation of Israel. And it all begins with a man named Abraham. So we have been working our way gradually, slowly through the life of this man, Abraham. And we're now in chapter 17, been moving through chapter 17, which deals with the whole subject of circumcision. This is one of the things I like about verse-by-verse teaching, is it forces the preacher to talk about things he probably wouldn't normally talk about. I mean, I don't know if in my own will I would have come to the Bible and say, okay, it's time to learn about circumcision. Let's grab a verse or two. But when you're moving verse by verse, you're sort of forced to deal with every subject. So in this chapter, we've seen the Abrahamic covenant restated. We've seen the token of the covenant, which is circumcision, verses 9 through 14. And this morning we move into the role of Sarah in this whole outworking of God's purposes. So here is our outline for uh, this morning, and it's got seven parts to it, which is nice. That's a biblical number. So I'm always happy when the outline comes out that way. But notice, if you will, verse 15, where Sarah, her actual name at this time is Sarai, has a, has a name change. And notice, if you will, Genesis 17, and notice, if you will, verse 15. It says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but you but rather Sarah shall be her name. Sarai means in Hebrew, my princess. And a lot of people would acknowledge that the name Sarah, which is what her name is being changed into here, means the princess. God, of course, you remember back in verse 5, has already changed the name of Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations. And this whole subject of changing names of people, it actually is pretty common as you start to study studying it through the Bible. 
For example, in Revelation 2, verse 17, to one of the churches there in Asia Minor, Jesus says to him, I will give hidden manna, I will give him a white stone, and upon that stone a new name written, which no one knows but he who receives it. Why is it that God is so interested in giving new names throughout the Bible? The answer is very simple. When a person trusts in Christ, they become a new creation in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become, they have become new. With a new status before God, as a newborn child of God, as a new creation of God, a new creature of God, comes a new identity. We need a new identity to fit our present reality because our present name many times doesn't fit the reality that God has now given us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that the Lord did this with the Apostle Peter. God said to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There his name is changed from Simon to Petros or in Aramaic Cephas, meaning little stone. No offense intended to the Roman Catholic Church, but this is not saying what they teach. It says that somehow Peter was the first pope. When you just look at this in the original language, you see that Jesus is using two stones. There's the big stone and the little stone. He's building his church on the big stone. That would be Peter's confession of who Christ is. But Peter's name is changed from Simon to to Petros, meaning little stone. And it's always encouraging to me to see the, the fact that when God gives people a new name, it's a name not so much based on how they're currently acting, but what they will become. Peter was hardly a stone, which implies stability, because just a few verses later, he's going to open his mouth again, and Jesus is going to say, get behind me who? Satan. Peter is the man, of course, that's going to betray the Lord three times. Peter, as I like to call him, is the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. That's why I think we can all relate to him. He was always sort of sticking his foot in his mouth, saying the wrong thing. And it's interesting to me that Jesus gave him a name based on not who he was or how he was currently acting, but what he would become. And as we have said before, boy, did he become that. There's no more pivotal character in the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 10, than this man, the Apostle Peter. This is the man who, although he denied the Lord three times, would open his mouth on the day of Pentecost and proclaim these words, and 3,000 people were saved. Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't look at you as how you are now, but what you will be made into by his grace? 
And here we see the same thing happening with Sarai. In fact, the best I can tell, she is the only woman in the Bible that has experienced or will experience this new name. And so why the new name changed to the princess? Well, I'm glad you asked, because verse 16 explains her blessings. She needs a new name according to her new blessings. And those blessings start getting articulated there in verse uh, 16. The first thing we see here are blessings for Sarah. Look at verse 16. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her. And she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come forth from her. Notice that God, in verse 16, two times, says he's going to bless Sarah. I find this very interesting because a lot of people will tell you that the Bible is sort of a woman-hating book. It's misogynistic, we're told. It's chauvinistic. And yet, the blessings fall upon Sarah and articulated for Sarah, just like they are for Abraham. In fact, you don't have to get far in the Bible to see this blessing on both genders. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them. It doesn't say here, God blessed him. It says, God bless them, male and female. What are these specific blessings? He's, she's told twice here, God speaking to Abram, now Abraham, two times I'm going to bless Sarah. What are those blessings? Well, they start to get articulated in the rest of verse 16. One of her blessings is Sarah is going to be the mother of the covenant son. I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. And keep that language in mind because a couple of verses later, Abram or now Abraham is going to forget that. Sarah is to be the mother of the covenant son Isaac. Notice very carefully that the covenant son is not Ishmael coming from the Abram-Hagar-Ishmael line. That will not continue the genealogy leading to Jesus Christ. But the covenant son is going to be through the Abraham, Sarah, Isaac yet to be born, Isaac line. More on that in just a second. But the first reason she's blessed is she's the mother of this covenant son. Another reason she is blessed, it's right there in verse 16, is she is going to be the mother of many nations. Now that makes sense because Abraham was told back in verse 6 that he would be the father of many nations. And has that promise materialized in time? It has because through the nation of Israel came two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Israel and Judah. And as we continue through the book of Genesis, what you're going to see is Edom 
is going to come through the lineage of Abraham and Sarah. And the blessings continue on. As you look there at the end of verse 16, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and he shall be, she shall be the mother of many nations. Kings of people will come from her. So she is not just going to be the mother of nations. She's actually going to be the mother of kings. Has that promise materialized? Well, it must have materialized because we have a book in our Bible called the book of First and Second Kings. The northern kings, the southern kings in the nation of Israel, 19 kings in the north. Sadly, not a single good king. When your team goes 0-19, that's not a good season. God had more grace um, on the south. There's 20 kings. At least there we have eight good kings. Still not a winning season when you think about it. But it's interesting to me that when God says nations are going to come from you, kings are going to come from you, that's exactly what God means. And that materialized in real history. There's something to understand about Bible prophecy when you start to see fulfilled prophecies. It's very literal. And the prophecies that God makes are extremely reliable. They don't always get fulfilled when we think they're going to be fulfilled. But in the course of time, God always keeps good on what he said. So Sarah's name has been changed because Sarah is a woman who has been blessed. And you would think Abram would just kind of now Abraham would stand up and say, praise the Lord. But he doesn't. He falls into unbelief. He has here, verse 17, three reactions. Number one, we've got a physical reaction. Number two, we've got an emotional reaction. Number three, we have what's happening in his heart. Look at the physical reaction there. It's right there in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, the first thing he does, it looks like it's something physical here. He just falls on his face. And the second thing that happens here is he just starts laughing. That's an emotional response. And it's not laughter out of joy, I don't, I don't believe. It's laughter out of unbelief. Like, oh, what a ridiculous statement that God just made to me. In fact, you might find this interesting. The Hebrew word for laughter used here, laughing, is uh, Yitzhak, where we get the name Isaac. So Isaac's name actually is referring to laughter. Except in this case, it's God getting the last laugh and not Abram or Abraham who is now laughing in unbelief. And we have a tendency to think he was laughing in unbelief because of his heartfelt response. We've got a physical response, an emotional response, and then what's happening in his heart. As you look very carefully there at verse 17... 
It says, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, wow, you mean God knows what's happening in our innermost being, in our hearts? Apparently he does. It's interesting to me that when Satan fell, he wasn't Satan at the time, he was Lucifer. But Isaiah 14 verse 13 describes what was happening in his heart when he fell. These various I will statements that he was making in his heart leading to his fall. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my stars above my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And God saw these things emanating from Lucifer's heart because Isaiah 14 verse 13, which starts this whole section, says, but you said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. God could look into the heart of the angel Lucifer and that led to his fall. There's an interesting uh, verse concerning one of enemies, the enemies of Israel in Ezekiel 25, verses 3 and 4. Ammon And why God is going to bring judgment on Ammon. And it says, and say to the sons of Ammon, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says, because you said, aha. Against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I'm going to give you to the people of the east as a possession, and they will set up their encampments among you and make the dwellings among, their dwellings among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. And God dealt with Ammon in terms of articulating a, a future judgment just based on what popped out of his mouth. Aha! Because the mouth is the window to the heart. The things that are happening in the heart eventually come out of the mouth. This is the kind of thing that's happening to Abraham. I mean, he's laughing. He's falling on his face. This is is silly. This is ridiculous because he had a heart at this point that was a heart of unbelief. Psalm 139 and verse 4 says, Even before there was a word on my tongue... Behold, Lord, you know it all. It is an astounding thing that God sits in judgment, not just on the things that we have done, not just based on the things that we have said, but on the inward desires and motivations of the heart. Action trouble, speech trouble is related to heart trouble. And Abraham just sort of didn't feel like God could pull this one off. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, of course, but this one is a little too hard for him. I mean, how how could a child be born to my wife, Sarah? 
given our advanced age. And the ages of the two of them are given right there in verse uh, 17. That's how we know, by the way, that there's a, there's a uh, ten-year difference between the two, age-wise. And yet, what is all of this leading to? It's ultimately leading to the next chapter, Genesis 18, verse 14, where we will read these words, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Question mark. Rhetorical question, because the answer is what? The answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Now, we might not trust the Lord, but that doesn't somehow handicap God or put a set of handcuffs on God or put a straitjacket on God. God can do anything. And many times we believe he can do things, and other times we just think it's too much for him. This is sort of what's happening to this man, Abraham. But it is interesting to me to note that God can see exactly what's happening inside of us. Do we have a believing spirit or an unbelieving spirit? It says in Matthew 12, 24 and 25, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, and then Matthew 12:25 says and knowing their their thoughts it says and knowing their thoughts Jesus said to them every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself can stand he knew exactly where they were because he has the ability as an omniscient god to look right into the heart So Abraham's reaction physically and emotionally gave him away, but God didn't have to wait for those reactions. He knew where they came from. He knew he had a heart or a spirit or a mindset at this time that some things are just too hard for God. And, of course, this is very convicting and indicting to us because we limit God all of the time. That's why we're always nervous about everything. I mean, if we tr- really trusted God, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be as nervous as we are. Gee, Lord, I'm really I'm really worried about my finances. Oh, so you don't believe I can provide for you? Gee, Lord, I'm, I'm really worried about the things going on in the world, the great global reset. I'm worried about inflation. I'm worried about unemployment. Oh, so you don't think I can take care of you in the midst of all of that, right? That's why you're worried. Well, Lord, I didn't mean it that way. Well, it doesn't matter how you meant it. I can see what you really meant. You just don't trust me. You know, it took me uh, quite a while as a Christian to learn this, but one of the most grievous sins the Christian can commit against God is the sin of anxiety. This is why Paul, in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, in the form of a command, says, Be anxious for nothing, for zero. And I find that when I'm anxious, I'm not trusting, and when I'm trusting, I'm not anxious. And so if you're here today just filled with anxiety about life, look at your heart. Do you trust God? Actually, we planned that that way because her name is Sarah, as you guys know. (laughs) 
do we trust God or do we not trust God? So this leads to Abraham's misunderstanding. See, this is not an intellectual problem. This is a heart problem. But now he's moving into an intellectual misunderstanding, not because he's slow mentally or intellectually, but because he has an unbelieving heart. And so he takes God's promises and rewrites them. And that's typically what we do with the literal words of God when we don't believe them. We just sort of rewrite them as if we're in a position to amend the things of God. I mean, God really didn't mean what he said. It couldn't be. And so this conception you see there in verse 18. Notice Genesis 17. And notice, if you will, verse 18. It says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Kind of um, a normal thing he would say from the human perspective because Ishmael had been his physical son for about 14 years from this point. He originally wanted to say, well, before the birth of Ishmael, Eliezer of Damascus in my household is going to be the heir of these things. And God was very clear. He said, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And then we've studied the Hagar line leading to Ishmael. Ishmael is born. Ishmael has been around for 14 years. And God simply takes, Abraham rather, takes God's promise that you're going to have another son, this time through Sarah, And I will fulfill my covenant through him. And he just rewrites the promise. And he makes it sound like the promise is going to be fulfilled through Ishmael. And the truth of the matter is, Abraham should have known better. Because didn't God say right there in verse 16? I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Her is Sarah, not Hagar. And so here's a case where Abraham simply takes a promise that God gave him as God is speaking to him and he rewrites it because he really doesn't believe it. I don't know about you, but this kind of thing encourages me because I have these struggles with God myself. I can go through times of great victory with God, trusting him, and then the next crisis arises and suddenly I'm not trusting him anymore because this is a different crisis and a different problem. And how is God going to help me now? Well, probably the same way he helped you through the other crisis. So we're all on this faith journey of learning to trust God more and more and more through the different emergencies of life. And now we have God's response concerning Isaac, verse 19. Then he will make a response concerning Ishmael, verse 20. And then he will make some concluding remarks concerning Isaac, verse 21. What does he say about Isaac yet to be born? There it is in verse 19. But God said no. And some of the Bible translations say nay, you know, nay kind of thing. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant 
with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So the first thing God says is no. The seed son is not going to come through Ishmael, Hagar. It's going to come through Sarah. Sarah is going to bring forth a son named Isaac. And what does Isaac's name mean? It means laughter. Yitzhak, laughter, earlier in the passage, a wordplay on Isaac in Hebrew, which means laughter. This is, this is God responding to Abraham's emotional response. I mean, you're laughing because the thing seems ridiculous, but God says, now I'm laughing at you. In fact, your very son that you're going to get from me is named Laughter. Because I'm laughing at your unbelief. I mean, I'm laughing at how little you think I am. I'm laughing at the human box you just put me in. Do you not understand who you're dealing with here? You're dealing with the God of heaven and the earth. You're dealing with the one who spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence. And you think it's hard for a woman in her 90s and a man who is 100, I guess it says, to have a child? I mean, that, that's, that's nothing for me. Now, to you, it's a big deal. But it's nothing to me. So you can laugh all you want in unbelief, but I'll laugh back at your unbelief. That's why I've entitled this message, The Laughter of God. God gets a good laugh out of us. Do you know that? Psalm 2 is very interesting because it talks about the nations in rebellion against God. It talks about Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and the Great Global Reset. And it talks there about the United Nations and all of these things that are being hatched today to push world government. It's right there in Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? In other words, this plan you have to create a world without me, it's silly. It's, it's vain. It's a waste of your time. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's go to Davos and let's design a world without God in it. And what does God do? Oh, no. Gosh, they're rebelling against me. I guess I'll take my toys and go home. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, that's God, laughs. I mean, to him, it's, it's, it's uh, hilarious. It's funny that they would even think they could pull something like this off. And then it says, the Lord scoffs at them. I mean, they're designing a world without God in it, and God is just laughing and laughing and scoffing and ridiculing them and making fun of them. The laughter of God. What a subject that is in the Bible. Abraham laughs at God in unbelief, and God names Isaac laughter. His own son is named laughter. You can laugh all you want, but God gets the last laugh. In fact, the name is given there. 
in verse 19. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Which basically means laughter. And Isaac is very special because it's through Isaac, not Ishmael. It's not through the child of works that was created in Genesis 16. It's through the child hatched miraculously in faith, Genesis 21, that God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant that has already been given in Genesis 15. We know that there's a covenant. We just don't know yet through whom this covenant will be fulfilled. Abram thinks it's his son Ishmael. God says absolutely not. Verse 19, but God said no, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac and I will establish, not cut, not cut a covenant in Hebrew, but I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. God here is not cutting a new deal. There's a different word for cut a covenant in Hebrew. All God is doing is establishing an existing covenant. He's just clarifying through which descendant the covenant's going to be fulfilled. Arnold uh, Fruchtenbaum in his Genesis commentary says, Normally the Hebrew would read to cut a covenant, but here it states he is going to establish a covenant, which involves the maintaining of an existing covenant. Therefore, God did not make a brand new covenant with Isaac. He was establishing with Isaac a pre-existing covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, that covenant, as it's being executed in real time in history, is forever. It says it right there in verse 19. An everlasting covenant. Which means it's got to rest on the shoulders of an everlasting God for this to be pulled off. Human manipulation will not pull this off. Genesis 16 should have taught us that. This is eternal. This is my business. This is on my shoulders. In fact, three times uh, in this chapter, the covenant that's not being cut here, but established, is called eternal. The Hebrew word olam, meaning everlasting. And it's going to be transgenerational because it's going to be fulfilled through his, Isaac's, descendants after him. Not Ishmael's seed, but Isaac's seed. Do you understand that Islam completely and totally rewrites passages like this? They completely rewrite it and they make it sound like Ishmael is the son of promise. When the Bible clearly states the opposite. In fact, here's the sign that I don't think it's there now, but it's just a couple of miles from this church. Uh, One of our joggers uh, took the picture for us. Fortunately, she's short and she could move in and out of that freeway fast to get a good picture. But it says there one family, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. One message. Uh, Islam... 
and Christianity, Islam and Judaism, common Abrahamic faiths. And yet, how could that be when the two religions are saying the exact opposite? I mean, in Islam, the focus is on Ishmael. In the Bible, the focus is on Isaac. In fact, do you understand that in Islam, it really wasn't Jesus who died on the cross. It was Judas pretending to be Jesus. You want to talk about getting something completely and totally wrong? That would be it. And yet there's this huge push today to make it sound as if Islam and Christianity and Judaism are all one big happy family because they all are connected to Abraham. In fact, you might know this, that in the United Arab Emirates, there has been built the Abrahamic house, one for Judaism, one for Christianity, so-called, I would rather call it Christendom, and one for Islam. Because don't you understand, we need a one-world religion, and we got to take all of these religions and put them on the same page. And the way they're doing it is through this man Abraham, common Abrahamic faith. In fact, we have in politics today the Abraham Accords. Why would they pick that name? Because they think that's the name the Muslims and the Hebrews can agree on in the Middle East. And yet, it's like mixing... Oil and water. I mean, you're, you're mixing two things that are, that are giving completely and totally opposite messages. One says the child of promise is Isaac. The other one says, no, it's Ishmael. One says Jesus hung on the cross to die for the sins of the world. The other one says, no, that was really Judas pretending to be Jesus common Abrahamic faiths have we lost our minds. This is insanity. And yet that's the name of the game today. The name of the game today is to find middle ground between the two. And I'm ashamed to say that it's evangelicals that are leading the charge into this as evidenced by something that happened a few summers ago between Dr. James White representing Christianity, supposedly, and Yasser Qadi representing Islam, White brings Yasser Qadi into a church before the assembled saints of God. And the two of them won't debate each other. They just share. Share ideas. Share commonalities. James White is a very skilled debater. He knows how to cross-examine. He knows how to object. And he doesn't do it here. Because the title of this whole thing was Beyond Debate. A friendly dialogue between Christians and Muslims in the church of Jesus Christ before the assembled saints of God. And beloved, I can find absolutely no scriptural evidence for any kind of practice like this anywhere in the Bible. I mean, never does Jesus bring in the Pharisees in front of the disciples and say, let's let's have a friendly dialogue and discover some middle ground. You won't find Paul doing this in all of his missionary activities. The Muslims, they come here. You know that, don't you? 
They find out where Christians are congregating. They'll show up after the service. Very nice people. You reach out and want to shake their hand, and they don't want to shake your hand because their religion won't allow it. And they'll invite you over to their cultural center to learn about the similarities that supposedly exist between Christianity and Islam. And they'll have a lot of neat, fun games and face painting and things for the kids and like a carnival atmosphere. And the Christians say, well, that's just great. Let's go join them. Not understanding that they're sitting down to a rigged game. Because in Islam, through something called taqiyah, you are allowed to lie to advance your cause. You can't do that in Christianity. Because Christianity has a commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. That doesn't exist in Islam. In fact, Allah's name actually means deceiver. The God that they're following is not even 100% truthful. That's why they don't even know on the day of judgment if they're going to make it in to heaven or not. Because... The deceiver could have changed his mind. I mean, after all, he ushered in the great deception of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it really wasn't Jesus. So here's James White bringing in Yasser Qadi. The two of them are sitting on a platform in a church in front of the assembled saints of God, and James White is calling this evangelism. This isn't evangelism. The church isn't for this sort of thing. Evangelism is you go out to where the Muslims are and you tell them to repent. Which means to change your mind about who you think Jesus is. Here's the truth. That's evangelism. That's not what's happening here. It's something that has taken over evangelicalism to a large extent called interfaith dialogue. And let me tell you something. The Muslims are laughing all the way to the bank when we do this. Because they see it as an opportunity to spread their doctrine under deceit, which they're allowed to engage in. In fact, here is a quote from Saeed Katoub, the Muslim Brotherhood's senior theoretician, back in 1966 in his book, he says this, the Muslim Brotherhood senior theoretician, there we go, Saeed Khatoub, was transparent in the true agenda behind Islamic participation in interfaith dialogue when he wrote, quote, The chasm between Islam and the society of unbelievers, that would be us, is great, and a bridge is not to be built across it so that the people on the two sides may mix with each other. But only so that the society of the unbelievers may come over to what? To Islam. See, the deception is, oh, we're just going to go into the middle and find common ground. That's what the naive Christian thinks when he agrees to this sort of insanity. And the Muslim who is allowed to lie knows exactly what they're doing. The agenda is not to find common ground. It's to convert America to Islam or at least desensitize Americans to Islam. And yet, how do you mix these two things together? 
when the doctrines of the two are teaching two different things. I have absolutely no interest in interfaith dialogue. I'll tell you where my interest is. It's an interfaith evangelism. Where we are calling them to truth, to the claims of Jesus Christ. If we're not doing that, we're just deceiving ourselves into an activity that is designed ultimately to destroy evangelical Christianity. These people, at the end of the day, they have no interest in dialogue. In fact, you see those three houses there? Islam can put whatever it wants on its house, but not the Christian house. You can't put a cross up. Now, isn't that interesting? I thought Christianity was all about the cross. Oh, you can't put that up in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. Well, why not? Well, because that's against Islamic law. So I guess you're really not that tolerant after all, are you? I mean, these three houses that they've set up, they're not even being fair to, to one of the houses. That's the nature of Islam. I'm hearing a lot of bad stuff right now, folks. I'll just be honest with you. We're in an election cycle. I'm hearing members of one party opening the door to Islam because we have to win. Well, beloved, you elect a bunch of Muslims to the, to the highest offices in the land. I don't care what party you belong to. The end result is not why that party was started. Because Islam is a, not just a religion, it is a political conquest ideology. Its agenda is to enslave. And yet it masquerades on the front end as interfaith dialogue. Muslims change very fast depending on the amount of population they control in the host country. Muhammad was the exact same way. When Muslims are in the minority, they quote one set of texts in the Quran that are very, they look like they're very loving and peaceful. Once the population reaches a certain threshold, once they get enough people elected to power, which we now have, or we're moving in that direction, it's called the squad, Keith Ellison, who is the Attorney General in Minnesota, once they reach a certain population level, you'll see a radical change because it happens everywhere around the world. They stop quoting the nice sections of the Quran and they start quoting the sections of the Quran about kill the infidel wherever you find them. And you say, well, whatever happened to the nice sections of the Quran? Oh, those were, and you need to learn this word, abrogated, canceled. Muhammad was the exact same way. When he was in the minority, it was one set of texts. When he got the majority, everything changed. And we have political leadership, even here in Fort Bend County. I don't care if this gets canceled from the Internet. Someone someone needs to start telling the truth at some point. And you have even politicians in Fort Bend County that are opening the door to Islam. 
do you not understand what you're doing? Well, they don't, apparently, because they've been lied to. And the Islamic faith has lied to countless Americans. Uh, It has lied to evangelical Christians, convincing us that interfaith dialogue is really a form of evangelism, when in reality it's a form of entrapment. And you say, well, gee, Pastor, why would you bring up all of these things here? Well, where better a place to bring it up? The covenant son is not Ishmael, as Islam teaches. It's Isaac. And the more you move into a common faith's mindset, the more you're trying to mix oil and water together. So to Ishmael now, we have... God's response. This is pre-Islamic, remember. Islam doesn't even come about until the 7th century AD. So there is blessings, not just on Isaac, the covenant son, but also Ishmael, the non-covenant son. So what does God say? Look, if you will, at verse 20. It says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. So apparently God heard Abraham's concern for Ishmael, the child that was in existence through the Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael line for about 14 years or 13 years. It shows you that God loves everybody. Yes, Ishmael was not the covenant son, but God still loved Ishmael and had a plan for him. Yes, I I can say a lot of terrible things about, I would call them truthful things, about the ideology of Islam. But that doesn't change the fact that God loves individual Muslims. They are souls for whom Christ died. He might hate what they stand for. You don't have to support their theology. You don't have to support their ideology. But when you see someone in the heat of the Houston sun, in the public library, in a full-blown burqa, where only the eye slits are visible in a woman, you have to see that person as a victim. And God knows, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. God knows how many bruises she's covering up because of an abusive husband. Get the movie if you want to see this and become familiar with it. Watch the movie Not Without My Daughter and you'll start to get a glimpse of what Islam is like. In fact, that movie I don't even think could be made today in our politically correct environment. But you really owe it to yourself to get that and to watch it uh, with Sally Field and, and so forth. So there is a blessing here on Ishmael. What's the specific blessing? Well, he too is going to be multiplied. Uh, it's also there in verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful 
and multiply him exceedingly. So there is a large and extensive Arab population today coming from this Ishmael line. And then it goes on and it says that through Ishmael, he will beget 12 princes. Again, verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes. Now, where are these 12 princes coming from? Eventually, we're going to get to Genesis 25. Maybe not this side of the rapture. Or it will say, now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to him. And it mentions these 12 names. So there is a blessing on Ishmael. It's just not the line leading to Jesus. Because God, at the end of the day, loves everybody. And it continues on in verse 20, and it says at the very end, I will make him a great nation. And the Arabic people coming from this lineage are to this day of great number. And then you come to verse 21, which is the concluding remarks that God makes concerning Isaac. So God has a love for the non-seed son and his descendants because God loves everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Then you look at verse 21 and you have some concluding remarks concerning this man Isaac. The Abrahamic covenant is coming through Isaac. Verse 21. But my covenant I will establish. Watch the Hebrew word there. It's not cut. It's not create. It's establish an existing covenant. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Wow. Now we have a prophecy with a date attached to it. God is a date setter. Look at that. So the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled through Isaac. That's exactly what we learned at the end of verse 19. What else does God say about Isaac? He says here that Sarah, the mother, Sarah will be the mother of the seed son, Isaac, not Hagar. That point was made earlier in verse 16. And then God says, by the way, by the way, by the way, the child is going to be born one year from now. So it's a timing passage. It's a timing prophecy. You know, in these last days that we're living in, if there's ever a book you should get into besides the Bible, it's this book right here. There's a lot of junk food prophecy out there. This is not junk food. This is meat and potatoes. I mean, it has a very humble title, Every Prophecy of the Bible. Wow. By the late Dr. John Walvoord, prophecy expert. And it's an astounding book to read because he takes you from Genesis to Revelation and shows you everywhere in the Bible where God's made a prediction. 
And then you start to see how many of the predictions God made that came to pass. You're reading one of them right here. One year from now, that son that you were laughing at, whose name, very name means laughter, because I'm laughing at your laughter, is going to be born. He doesn't just say the son is going to come. It's going to happen in a year. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus was seeking to communicate to the disciples in the upper room. In John 13, verse 19, he says, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. And then a chapter later, he says the same thing. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. In other words, Jesus to the eleven, Judas having left the room, in the upper room says, all right, here's how you're going to know that everything I've said is true. I'm going to start making predictions. And a lot of those predictions are going to happen in your lifetime. In fact, a lot of them are going to happen this week. And when you see these things happening in real time, you'll know exactly who I am. And if that didn't happen, there's no possible way these 11 men would have left the upper room and died horrific martyrs' deaths for the cause of Christ. Peter, according to tradition, crucified upside down. How could a man do that? If the things Jesus said in the short term didn't happen. So God here is making a short-term prediction. Laugh all you want, but one year from now, that son is going to be born through you and your aged wife, and I'm going to fulfill my covenant, ultimately leading to Jesus Christ through Isaac. And I'll be laughing, because I can pull it off. So what's coming in the future in the book of Genesis? Well, God said a year. So we would think, since the pregnancy period is nine months, that it would take him three months to heal from his circumcision. And then he would have a sexual relationship with his wife. And through that... Uh, Sarah would conceive. And then following that three-month period, when that impregnation starts, three months to heal from the circumcision, nine months later, Isaac is born. And what's going to happen in the interim before Isaac is born? Two things. Number one, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, Genesis 18 and 19. Number two, the encounter with Abimelech, Genesis 20. So those sort of fit into this time period in between the promise and then the birth of Isaac. And so that's what we see, that's what we see coming in the book of Genesis. So we will pick this up next week beginning in verse uh, 22, and then from there we'll be moving into Genesis 18, 
and 19, which is the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is sort of inserted in between the promise and the ultimate fulfillment of the promise coming in Genesis 21. Wow, this is really an exciting book, isn't it? The things that we learn. And, of course, the most exciting thing a person can do, I believe, we have a lot of thrill seekers today, is to really do something radical. And there's nothing more radical than changing your eternal destiny. And you change your eternal destiny by placing your personal faith in the promise of Jesus Christ. Jesus, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, did what a mere human could not do. He, as the God-man, bridged the gap between God and man. He paid for our sin problem. And his final words on the cross were, it is what? It is finished. There's nothing left for us to do other than to receive what God has done for us as a free gift. And you can receive that free gift right now where I'm speaking, as I'm speaking. You don't have to walk an aisle to receive this. You don't have to join a church to receive this. You don't have to give money to receive this. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord convicts you of your need to do this. And you respond not with unbelieving laughter as the world does. But you respond with a heart of faith which takes God at his word. And then you exercise faith in that promise, the promise of the gospel. And that's what makes you a Christian. We're not dealing here with a 12-step process. We're dealing here with a one-step process. It's as simple as the word believe, which which means trust. Belief is only as good as the object it's placed in. It's got to be placed in the right object. You can't place it in a person that died on the cross, which is really Judas. That's the wrong object. You've got to place it in the right object. The true Jesus, who did die on the cross to pay the sin debt of the world. And then his bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day confirmed his promises. And as these promises were starting to be fulfilled in real time, faith was growing in the disciples that this is the guy. That you may believe that I am he. And so our exhortation is for people to, even as I'm talking, to place their personal faith in Christ for salvation. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Brent Nasworth and Wanda... Uh, We'll be back there, too. They would love to talk to you about having a relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your truth. Grateful for the book of Genesis. Um, I do pray that we would walk these principles out this week as your people. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen. Amen.